Well, if you turn in your Bibles, we continue our study in the book of John. The book of John, chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. A very well-known passage from verses 1 through 16 of John, chapter 11. It is the story of Lazarus. <coughs> the story of Lazarus who died and Christ will raise from the dead. Regarding the purposes and the glory of God, this section of text is well known. John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16 will be our text this morning. The story extends through the entire, almost the entire book, but we will be reading from verses 1 through 16, and that will be our text of study this morning. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and... After that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. Your word which is eternal, which never fades, which is e that which changes our heart. And we pray, God, open the eyes of our heart once again, that we might see great and wonderful things in thy law. In Jesus' name, amen. Johann Sebastian Bach was born into a musical family. Bach was born in 1685, and by the age of 10, by the age of 10, his parents were dead. He had a friction-filled life, 
but he decided early on that he would write music, that he would write music for the glory of God, and this is what he did. Most of his work was explicitly biblical. He was compared by some to be like the fifth evangelist. At the age of 17, he became the organist at the church where he was at, and he was given charge over the entire music ministry. And during his ministry in Weimar, Germany, he wrote a new cantata every single month. And during one three-year period, he wrote, he conducted, he orchestrated, he performed with his choir and orchestra a new cantata every week. No one had any idea of the mark that Bach would make when he left and that legacy lasts some 300 years later. You can hear his music. At the beginning of every authentic manuscript, one will find the letters J.J., the initials standing for Yesu Yava, Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. And at the end of the manuscript, you find the letters S.D.G., Soli Deo Gloria. To God, glory be alone. Bach is a reminder. It's a reminder of how we live for the glory of God and giving one's life daily to the glory of God, to living for the glory of God is what our life is all about. The Westminster Shorter Catechism explains it in its first statement. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It summarizes, summarizes the biblical idea that Ephesians 1 brings out very clearly. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 5, it reads, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. To what? To the praise of the glory of His grace. To the praise of the glory of His grace, in Him, verse 11, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose who works His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. To that end, we were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the what? Praise of His glory, once again. And verse 14, who was given to us, speaking of the Holy Spirit, who has given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. We were predestined, we were called, we were drawn to God, we were saved to the praise of the glory of God's grace. It is all for the glory of God. The glory of God is supreme. God Himself the Sovereign One, the Creator of the universe, is the one who is to receive all glory because life is not about you, it is not about me, it is not about my agenda, our health, our well-being, our safety, our goals. It is about God. It is about God's glory, about God's will, about God's work, about God's purposes. And that is what the crux of this text here is today, about the glory of God. As we come to... John chapter 11, you remember the context in which we have come. Jesus has completed his public ministry. 
Right after the Feast of Dedication in chapter 10, also known as the Feast of Lights, also known on our calendars as Hanukkah, commemoration of the deliverance of Jerusalem under Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a cruel ruler, and God delivered the Jews, took them out of that, and we look at that and how Jesus was confronted there at the Feast of Dedication, and Jesus had told them plainly that he was the Son of God. They took up stones in order to stone him. He left to go beyond the Jordan, chapter 10, to a place where John was first baptizing. And now as we come to chapters 11 and 12, they form a bridge in the book of John, and the gospel of John, between what his public ministry is, between all of the displays of who he was and his powerful words and works, to a time right before his passion, the passion of Christ, also known as the suffering of Christ, right before he comes to the cross. And here in chapter 11, he is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. The greatest sign yet, the seventh sign in the book of John. The sign of the raising of Lazarus is the capstone after he turned the water into wine, after he raised the nobleman's son, after he healed the lame man by the pool of Bethesda, after he fed 5,000, after he walked on water, he cured the man born blind, here he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Perhaps the most significant miracle of his ministry here on earth, aside from his own resurrection, he raised others, though. What was the difference, some might say? He raised Jairus' daughter in the book of Mark. He raised the woman's son from Nain in the book of Luke. But those he raised immediately. This one he waited for four days and then raised Lazarus such that there would be no, no alternative reason by which one could render that the sun was raised. Each of these, the signs were performed, they were displayed, and each of these times his deity was all the more brightly shown. You might think that the greater the miracle, the more convinced the religious leaders would be. You would think that after changing water to wine, one would be amazed, but one might not be convinced. After walking on the water, one might think they might have been seeing an illusion or whatever it may be. One might be amazed at various things, but raising somebody from the dead? Funny. Notice that each of these miracles, the religious leaders who opposed them never opposed the fact that he had done these particular signs, never opposed the fact that he had done these miracles. There wasn't some sort of alternative explanation that was given. At issue was not the miracles or the good deeds of Jesus. At issue was an unbelieving heart because the religious leaders were more committed to what they believed. In fact, if you look at verse 47... After he raised Lazarus, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. <clears throat> and they said in verse 48, 
If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And here's the consequences. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were more concerned about their position and what Rome would do than about what was true. Than about what Jesus was telling them. That he was the Messiah. That he had come. At stake here, Jesus wanted to display God's glory, God's purposes, and God's will. It was more important than their nation, their agenda. And so we look at verse 1. How Jesus explains that God's glory is greater. It doesn't matter whether one is sick or healthy. Verse 1. There's a man who was sick. Lazarus of Bethany is rather nonchalant, matter-of-fact way that the text writes this, that he was sick. We don't know what he was sick of. We do know that it was near death. A messenger was dispatched to Jesus, and where Jesus was from Bethany, it would take about roughly a day, roughly a day to get to where Jesus was. And Jesus, after that, waited another two days, and it would take him a day to travel, which made it something like four days. And the Bible tells us that it was this Mary who anointed the Lord Jesus with ointment. It's funny because the account of Mary anointing Jesus comes in the next chapter. But that's not a problem because the other synoptics, which are written before John, would have recorded this. And also John perhaps made the assumption that it was well known. The story was well known of what Mary did. The message to Jesus was simple and clear, not without, without any guilt, a request, not a request for Jesus to come, simply, he whom you love is sick. The decision was up to Jesus. What would he do? His reply was, the sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Not meaning physical death. That's rather obvious. The sickness will not end in death. But rather that this particular sickness of Lazarus, the point, the final outcome of the story, was not his death nor his life, but the glory of God but the glory of God. You remember when they walked by the blind man in John chapter 9? And he passed by in verses 1 to 3. He saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, and that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither this man who sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. The central point is not this man's blindness. The central point of the story is not Lazarus' illness. The central point of the story is not whether or not Lazarus will be raised from the dead. The central point is that the glory of God might be shown in Lazarus just as the works of God was shown through the blind man in chapter 9. This past week, I caught some type of flu laid out in bed at home. It's miserable being sick. I know many of you have shared with me over the past number of months you've been ill and, you know, I get notes of people being sick and I thought to myself, wow, amazing. 
This is the passage. It relates to me, you know? Here I am. I'm thinking about how miserable I am. But it's not about me. It's not about me. And I think to myself, yesterday I received a text message about my own father who entered into Swedish hospital. I think he might have had a minor stroke or something like that. He's still there. And I want to visit him, but I can't because I have a flu. I think to myself, it is not about our healing. As we watched in Sunday school this morning, we thought about how Johnny Erickson Tata had gone to see a faith healer in order to be healed. Why? God doesn't... God is not an uncompassionate God. God desires that we might be healed. But uh, the point is not whether we are sick or whether we are ill. The point is the glory of God and however we live our life. Whatever God does in our life, whether we are sick or whether we are ill, may it be for the glory of God. And what it does is it brings us to the cross where we can look more towards heaven when our bodies will be glorified. Again, giving all glory and honor to God. If you turn in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5. Verses 1 through 5. It says, For we know that if this earthly tent, speaking of our body figuratively, which is our house is torn down, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. But indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who has given to us the Spirit as a pledge. You know, physical infirmities make our heart long for heaven, make our yearning increase for the glory of God, make our desire for what is eternal, and places everything into focus because it stops us, claims our self-sufficiency and pride and brings us to realize it's sin. I've watched people, and I'm sure many of you have, gone to the hospital who have passed away. I remember one mother in particular. One mother in particular I went to visit. She loved the Lord, went to the hospital, mother of a friend of mine. And she lay in that hospital bed and she was happy to see me. As soon as she was there, I, as soon as I was there and she saw me and she asked about my family and she gracefully said many kind words and she was speaking so well, asking about me, talking about how she wanted to go home and told my mother that she wanted to go to heaven and 
It wasn't about her and the pain that she was in or how miserable she was. It wasn't about missing her family or the things that she would own. It wasn't about her legacy or <clears throat> the things she would miss. It was all about heaven, the Lord, others. You see, she knew how to live well and she knew how to die well. What an encouragement, which is something that is hard to find. Something to know. Whether you're healthy or you're sick, it's about the glory of God. Whether you are, have abilities or have a disability, it's about the glory of God. Whether you have limbs or not, it's about the glory of God. It's not about how much you do, it's about who you are. It's not about how gifted or talented or capable you are, it's about how well you know and love the Lord Jesus. It is about the glory of God, and that is what the text says. That is what the text says. This sickness, verse 4, is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And we can give glory to God, whether in sickness or in health. Number two, God's glory is more important than safety and danger, verse 7 to 10. After this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? In other words, he had just proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. I and the Father are one, he said in the previous chapter. And he said what? They picked up stones to stone him. They knew what he meant. They knew what he meant. And they were out to kill him. He wanted to go back to Judea. The disciples were stunned. They wanted to know why in the world would you want to go back where they have a price on your life? The answer to Jesus gave was proverbial. Was proverbial. Twelve hours in a day, anyone walks in a day who does not stumble. You see, the Jews looked at the daytime as clock hours. Twelve hours for the day, twelve hours for the night. Not like us. We look at it sundown, sun up. It varies depending upon the time of the year, etc. For them, it was 12-hour segments. Proverbial statement. If Jesus were to walk in the day, there would be no stumbling because he would be there. Nothing could happen. Nothing could happen without the will of God. There was a time that Jesus would not be there and no knowledge of him. It would be like the night. The point being that Jesus was making was that going to Jesus, going to Judea because God wanted him to, no one could subvert. There was nothing to fear. Nothing to fear because God had his will. <clears throat> no one could do anything to him before the time in which he would be called home. No one could do anything to him without the permission of God. And even though it meant suffering, he would do so. Because doing God's will may require risk, may require sacrifice, may require suffering. <clears throat> Many times in missions work, people would ask, is it safe? Well, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. And there are no guarantees. There's no guarantees. You drive on the freeway, there is no guarantees. Safety and security is not our main factor in deciding what to do or whether or not to go. You know, I think of Gladys Allward. She was a missionary to China during and after World War II. 
She brought 100 orphans over the mountains from age 4 to 15, from Sion to Sensi. When she arrived in Sion with the children, she was deathly ill. She suffered internal injuries from a beating by the Japanese and compound that she was in. She was racked with fever. She had typhus. She had pneumonia, malnutrition, shock and fatigue. You can read her biography. In her ordeal, she learned to choose Christ over anything else. There was a relationship she had to she had developed with Colonel Lennon, came to visit her in Sion, and he asked her to marry him. She turned him down because she knew it would interfere with her work that God had given to her. And she said goodbye to him, train station, and they never met again. She continued to serve the Lord there and in England until she died in 1970. What would you do? Would you have come on home? If you were sick in a war-torn area, racked with fever and typhoid, if you were alone, if you had pneumonia, if you were fraught with malnutrition, if you had shock and fatigue, if you were worn all by yourself for the sake of orphans. You know, as a board member at Action International, I have the privilege of interviewing missionaries before they go out on the field, and I've seen many time and time again who have given up what they have here, the safety and security here that is here in the U.S., the comforts here. Why? Because the gospel is more important. The glory of God is more important than their own personal desires. That is the point. So what's more important than God's glory? Nothing. God's glory, God's work, and we look at God's purposes, verse 11. Then he said, after this, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, verse 12, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And Jesus wasn't speaking literally. And he clarifies that he was speaking that he had died. Verse 14. Why was all of this happening? And I'm glad for your sakes I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. But let us go to him. Notice in verse 6, he had delayed two days longer after the messenger came to him. And it's thought that perhaps Lazarus had already died. Perhaps on the way that that messenger came to Jesus. But Jesus intentionally stayed an extra two days. And we'll see in the coming weeks why he did that. Then it takes another day, the fourth day, to come back to, G, to, to Judea. But he did all of this so that they might believe. There is a purpose behind what happens. There's a purpose behind the physical infirmities. There's a purpose behind the trials. There's a purpose behind things that happen. There are no true accidents by chance. God is all wise. God is all intentional. He is omnipotent and all powerful. And God is all sovereign. And he has his purposes. I remember watching the news 12 years ago in 2001, sitting and watching the evening news. 
And it was about an airplane that was flying over Peru. An airplane that was flying over Peru that was carrying some missionaries. And these missionaries' names were the Bowers. Veronica Bauer and her little girl and her husband and her son. And her husband and son, they were, they were holding each other and the, the wife and daughter. And they were flying over Peru and they were mistaken by the Peruvian military as perhaps a, being a drug plane, a plane that was smuggling drugs. And so the Peruvian military shot it down. Bullet went through and killed her and her daughter. Her husband and her son survived. And I remember the biography they gave a little bit about her, how she how she had uh, graduated from a Bible school and really wanted to be a missionary, and so she intentionally married a missionary so that they would have the same life goals, and she really loved the Lord. It's a tragedy. I remember the story. It made the evening news, and I thought to myself, what a tragedy. But then as I watched the evening news, what happened was they brought her parents up on for an interview. I believe it was Tom Brokaw who was anchoring NBC Evening News. World news. World news tonight. And I listened as they had the opportunity to, to share about her work for the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. The good news. And I thought to myself, what other way would it have been broadcast on the evening news which reached millions of people around the United States? God has his purposes by which things happen. Perhaps that was not even the extent of it. Perhaps people came to know Christ. I don't know. But God can take situations which we see as tragedies and bring his glory to pass. <coughs> That's what Jesus does here. As we see him delay for two days, making a total of four, and we say, well, look, what happened? It's not because God is indifferent or uncaring. No, it is because God desired that they would believe. And even though there was great risk, do you know what Thomas said? Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, verse 16, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Thomas always seems to get a short end of a stick, you know, because of his doubt. But here there's a flash of his commitment. A flash of his commitment which said, in fact, well, let's all go. We'll all die. Hard to know whether or not it was a jest or sarcasm or whether it was genuine. But whatever it was, he was resigned to following Christ to his death. If that means risking my life, to follow God for the sake of the kingdom that I die, then so be it. Here I am. Send me. Do you care about God's glory that much? Do you care about God's work? Do you care about the purposes of God, the glory of God, the will of God? Do you have that zeal for God that desires that God be known? J.C. Ryle, who's the Bishop of Liverpool, the first Bishop of Liverpool, England, 
way back when in England wrote on the subject of zeal, he said, quote, zeal is a burning desire to please God, to do his will, and to advance his glory in the world in every possible way. A zealous man is preeminently a man of one thing. He is more than earnest, hearty, uncompromising, wholehearted, and fervent in spirit. He sees only one thing, cares about one thing, lives for one thing, swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or dies, has health or sickness, whether he is rich or poor, pleases people or gives offense, whether he is thought of as wise or foolish, gets blame or the praise... Whether he receives honor or is given shame, he burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Such a one will always find a sphere for his zeal. If he cannot preach, he will work and give money. He will cry and sigh and pray. If he cannot fight in the valley with Joshua, he will uphold the hands of Moses until the battle is won. Unquote. That is zeal for God. And you don't have to be you don't have to be years as a Christian in order to have zeal for God. You don't have to be older and retired. I read a story about someone, a young man in 2006. His name was Nathan Johnson, 16-year-old, just like some of the teens we have here. He dreamed of starting a revolution for Christ. He wrote in his diary, God's will for me is to radically impact my school for him. But before he could see the revolution becoming a reality, Johnson's life was cut short by an automobile accident after striking a cement truck almost head on. Romans 8.28 says, We know all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. So why? Why? Why, can, why do these things happen? Here's what happened. The press wrote, an article published September 6, 2006. Despite his early death, friends and family say that God is using this tragedy to make Nathan Johnson's dream a reality. Nearly 300 people have professed faith in Christ in the aftermath of Johnson's accident, including more than 30 at his funeral and 16 more two nights following the funeral at the Wednesday night youth gathering. One of Johnson's gifts was his football ability, <clears throat> which he displayed as a kicker and punter at Beach High School. Johnson consistently kicked field goals of 45, 50 yards, but he saw his athletic ability as a tool to win teammates to Christ. In his journal, Nathan had written, quote, God has given me the gift of kicking so that I can start by winning my teammates on the football team to Christ. During his freshman year, he led two players to faith in Christ during football camp and later led a senior to faith. 
Inside the front cover of this year's team program, which sold at every game, is a picture of Johnson in his football uniform with a message dedicating the season to him. At the top of the page is the Apostle Paul's declaration of Philippians 1.21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The bottom of the page is Jesus' command in Matthew 5.16. Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The following page of the program has another photo of Johnson in his uniform with the quote from his journal about impacting his school for Christ. The bottom of the page is a quote from Johnson's grave marker. Dude, heaven is sweet. See you there. In the aftermath of his funeral, the professions of faith have continued and Several local churches report they baptize people weekly who saved, had been saved at the funeral and saw teenagers at Johnson's church have been saved at several programs after the funeral. The testimony of even a teenager who desired to have zeal for Christ poured over and God was glorified. And the question is, do we have that same commitment to the glory of God? Even when we are sick, when we face tragedy, or when there are difficulties that set us back, do we desire the glory of God above all else? I praise God because it is not about me. I praise God because it is not about you. It is about the glory of God. I praise God and ask God that he might help my own father to see his own need for Christ. I praise God that nothing serious has happened. They're just monitoring him and they think whatever it may be, but for a few days, he'll be there. Life stops so that one might think about the eternal realities of what life is all about. Living for the glory of God. Things that matter for eternity because this world passes on. And James reminds us, your life and my life are but a vapor. Let's pray.